Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast, a Wimbledon preview. Before we start today's show, though, we want to ask you a favor. Everyone here at Beyond the Baseline and Sports Illustrated, we value our listeners. We want to hear from you. So we are asking you guys to take five minutes or so, help us with a survey we're running. This will help us to improve this show and serve you guys better. Um, we are always open to suggestion here, and this will formalize it. So take a few minutes of your day, if you don't mind. Give us some feedback. We'd appreciate it. You can find this survey at si.com backslash baseline survey. Si.com backslash baseline survey. Um, do me a favor, take a few minutes and uh, good, bad, and different. Fill it out. Thanks for listening. All right, let's uh, let's now get to it. We've got a uh, special guest, former Wimbledon champion, and um, good friend, tennis channel commentator, wife, mother, all around good dude. Um, our friend Lindsay Davenport, as promised, will help us preview Wimbledon 2019. This is the annual Wimbledon pregame uh, podcast. So welcome back. I don't know. Did we do this last year? I think we did the French last year, John. Very right. hurt you didn't remember yeah, that. Yeah, they're different. all majors to me. They all, I'm, like, I'm like a player. They all blend together after a while. Um, I should uh, I should say you you and I are nothing if not good soldiers. So I'll say I'll spare you and I'll say we're uh, we'll be working for Tennis Channel and you can. Uh, you could watch this like twenty four seven. What? Uh, I don't know where to start. Let's let's. You know what? I got a question for you. The French Open ended uh, almost three weeks ago. What do you make of this period these days? In between, uh, so Serena did not play in these last three weeks. Nadal, Djokovic, team, funny, a lot of players. What what do you make of this uh, three week period between the French and Wimbledon these days? Yeah, it's so interesting because for when I was playing and obviously for, for so long, it was only two weeks. And that seemed like absurd where you had Rafa 
winning the French on Sunday and practicing Monday on the grass, you know, in London, it seemed like, or at Queens. And that didn't seem right. I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. You know, Grand Slams, they're so exhausting for players. And it's obviously physical, but so much so the emotional component of it and trying to win seven matches, but trying to be also clicked on for 14, 15 days. Um, it takes a lot out of players. So um, ideally, I, I, I think there should be, it, it should all be blown up and the Grand Slam should all be placed at different types to give players the best chance to be their best possible version of themselves at the majors. Um, and right now our schedule starting with a major in January and then two so close together, three weeks is better. But ideally, I think if you want the players playing their best tennis, I still think you got to spread them out more. So Djokovic is playing that um, that that Boodles exhibition, and I don't know if you saw t- team was practicing with with one of the um, one of the players in the qualifying draw. How much of a difference is there between one of these tune-up events where they're a real scoreboard and ball kids and a chair umpire and an exhibition or some some hitting with with qualifiers? I mean, is, is it that big a deal? Yeah. I think the biggest difference and what goes through the mind of the majority of top players is how different the grass plays from some of the warm-up tournaments to the all England club, because a lot of times it's not even comparable and it sounds so silly. Okay. Grass is grass. Like you need to get matches on grass, but then you go play on the grass at, at Wimbledon and it plays so different and it plays more, like a quick hard court and you're not getting as many bad bounces and you're not kind of fighting yourself. And if you're a baseliner, you have a much better chance there than you do at some of the other sites where, you know, the balls don't bounce perfectly. The courts aren't cared for the same way. And I think the top players, um, for the most part, obviously there's some exceptions. Roger likes to play um, one lead up in Germany and all that. But I think for the most part, the players give Serena like, you know what, I'm going to practice and I'm going to be ready to go whether I get a match in somewhere else or not. I'm not worried about that because once I get on the ground, uh, the All England Club, uh, I'm going to just get used to those conditions. Right. Um, so let's, uh, I don't know, let's let's start with the men. And I feel like, I feel like these discussions are for a long time now have been very similar. Who's going to puncture the big three versus, uh, <laughs> boy, that women's field is a gaping abyss and anyone can win. Um, let's start with the men. Djokovic, Federer, and your number three seed, unhappily, uh, Nadal. Do, do you see, before I ask you to like pick one of those three, do you, do you see anyone outside that group uh, doing any damage? I mean, we say this, like, it seems like coming into every Grand Slam. It has to happen. Like, it, there's no reason, and there's it, there's just no good explanation why nobody else can break through, that these players at their ages, I know they're great players, but physically you got to think that someone in their young or mid-20s would be ready to step up, and it just hasn't happened. It's going to happen. I still don't think it's going to happen in the the last two majors of 2019. I mean, eventually you have to think that Tsitsipas is going to win one or Zverev is going to win one team, most likely probably more so on clay, not on the grass. Um, But I don't think it's coming this year. I think it's going to be Novak or or Roger, which is just remarkable because we were saying that obviously a decade ago and now we're still saying it. So so which way, which way does this cut? I mean, I feel like for a while it was like, wow, these guys are so good and they're so durable and the longevity only makes them greater 
And now I feel like there's a little bit of a creeping sense of, man, the rest of the field, it's it shouldn't be like this. It, it almost yeah, undercuts it, how good they are, that no one has stepped up. Yeah, it is bizarre. They're so good. So it, there's like two arguments there. Like, they're so amazing and not trying to take away from that at all. Right. But the generation that then came right after them, I think it's it's pretty safe to say there was not a great, great player in that generation. Okay, so then you that let allowed these three players to continue to dominate. Then you go then immediately to the next generation. I don't know. They're kind of coming up into their late 20s. You know, I, I don't know who's who you could consider in that or mid to late 20s, like great, great. What, they still have some time to establish their game. Hopefully this generation in their young 20s, there looks like there's greatness there. Um, and that's the exciting part is watching them kind of put it all together. I'm just still amazed that, that, that physically that the others can just hang in there, especially at the majors, three out of five sets exactly. in seven matches, and it's no problem. They obviously know how to manage themselves mentally. They know how to manage themselves physically on the off days. They have a huge advantage in that and in the pressure situation. But you, it, it, historically, it's always caught up to players in their early 30s. And now we're just, it's just amazing that late 30s and it's its not a big deal anymore. It's crazy. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Federer and, and Feliciano Lopez win tournaments. You say both of these guys who are winning tournaments this week are senior tour eligible. Um, wait, let me take a little detour <laughs> with you. Did you um, did you read John Isner's piece for Forbes? No, I saw that. I, I you know, I I have some articles saved to read on the plane, um, but I saw he wrote a piece and about all the expenses and everything that goes into it. But I have not sat down and read it word for word yet. It's uh, it's a good read. I mean, people are picking it apart a little bit, and I I, I think some of the criticism is probably. Uh, generally fair, but but no, it's 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 a good piece. It's a good read. I, I don't want to spoil it, but basically, it makes the point that everyone sees how much tennis players earn, and they don't realize the considerable expense from renting a house to having a trainer on staff. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. But the flip side of that, I'm wondering, especially hearing you talk just now, how much of an advantage do you think it is 
to the top, top guys who can play spare no expense tennis? It is, it, it, you can't even calculate what a huge advantage it, advantage it is. And, and not that they haven't earned it, but even something as minor as, you know, a, a loss a little earlier than they thought or not. And it doesn't matter. They can have their plane there right away and they don't, they're not wasting time like surfing their phone, trying to get a lower fare, trying to change tickets, trying to get places. And they can also, the biggest thing is obviously afford to just have a perfect team around them where they don't have to worry about anything except their performance on court. Everyone else is taking care of everything from what they eat, when they eat, getting booking cars, getting the players there, getting the courts, making sure they have the right court. It, it's all that stuff is just brain damage. And right. for 95% of the players, they have to handle all of that going and figuring out their schedule on their own, figuring out when their doubles is going after singles. And it, it it's pretty basic stuff, but it adds up when you're solely in charge and, for so many athletes that are on team sports, they don't they don't really worry about any of that stuff. And that's kind of the equivalent of these guys at the very top who don't have to worry about what everything costs, what the Uber's gonna cost from the airport. Does transport come yet? Right, <laughs> like right. can can I get a ride at six AM? All these little things. They don't have to even worry about that, but their play. I, I think it's it doesn't get discussed enough how hard the sport is for the players that you know, are trying to make an, a great living and still try to improve their game. It's very hard to do that. And this thing with John, too, I mean, I think sometimes we, we hear about these struggles and you assume it's guys that are, you know, triple-digit rankings, playing the challengers, and um, sort of you hear these stories and they're taking bananas from the buffet and putting them in their backpack. But, you know, when, when John Isner is writing about uh, how he needs to economize and the financial pressures he's under, I'm thinking, it, wow, I mean... Brilliant. Yeah, it it goes a long way, especially then you get some of these players. Obviously, now with a family, he obviously doesn't want to travel without them. Um, but to be totally in charge and for, for a player who wants to bring a team and wants to give themselves a best chance, they're buying six to eight airline tickets, trying to figure out what flights to take. You know, it just becomes like brain damage. <laughs> and like that is the advantage truly of being on a team sport where you don't worry about that stuff, uh, your equipment is provided, someone has all your, your stuff lined up ready for you to take and take the field and your transport, all that stuff. And um, truly a, a, the top players who have really good teams around them, they get to just worry about hitting the ball. Did you think about this? Can I ask you that? What? Did, did, tell me if this is uh, too personal. We'll let it out. But I mean, to, no, no, did, I'm happy. Did you think? I mean, to me, it's like it's a real dilemma. Like, at what point am I economizing, and at what point am I giving myself the best chance to win? If I'm sitting in the back of the plane and um, you know, flying value jet, I'm saving a few bucks, but that could really adversely impact my performance. On the other hand, if I'm ranked number fifty and I'm traveling with a masseuse and a trainer. I'm probably operating a net loss. I mean, to, to what extent did you worry about finances when you were playing? Yeah, it's it, obviously more so in the beginning of your career. I was, uh, you know, I was fortunate when I was doing well and towards the end of my career, you, you kind of have a good handle on, okay, for me to play well, I, I have to be able to get off a plane and, and still feel good about, about my body and not be going on no sleep and all of that. Um, but it does start to become a question of how many people do you want 
around you per week. Because it's not only, okay, you've got expenses, you've got to get all these hotel rooms, you've got to get cars, you've got to get all this stuff. Um, But as far as it it was for myself, I would always do what was, what I felt would help me play my best. Then you start going down to like, how many people are you comfortable with on the road? How many people are you comfortable supporting on the road? It's so hard. And for players that feel like they have a chance to win majors or want to win majors, you have to spend a ton of money and it doesn't always pan out. And that's the problem. You're not guaranteed to even cover your expenses when you go to Australia and you're all in and you bring this big team right. and you train hard. You could roll your ankle in the first round and, or lose first round and you've lost a, a, a boatload of money. And I think that's what scares so many players. So I was uh, at, the, at the French Open. I was with Chanda for a lot of times on the desk, and I would ask her these questions, and she would laugh at me. So I'd say one of them was, if, if it's a third set and you're winning 3-2, do you say to yourself, boy, I'm only 12 points away? Okay, I'm only 11 points away. And she said, that's not how you think of it at all. That's preposterous. Never, no. I, you don't start thinking, well, I should say everybody, but I wouldn't start thinking points until it was like within two points probably. No, I'd be like 18 more, 17 more. But the other thing I said was about money. I said some of these matches, if you're, I'm, I'm just throwing out names here, but it, it's Petra, Petra Mardich in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. And you say, literally, this is a $500,000 skins match. How do you not think about that? If you're if you're not better than a doll, Serena, that it affects a lot of players. I, it has to. I remember earlier in my career knowing some of the numbers and then trying to make like an. It would come up in my mind, and then as I got older or more mature, I I wouldn't think about it or I wouldn't look for, so I wouldn't know. Um, but it's hard. I mean, the difference between some matches of one point mm-hmm. or three points or whatever is is huge, and now the money's even crazy high. Um, for ninety percent of the players, I think it, it plays a factor. Oh, you do think so? Oh, good. You're agreeing yeah. with me. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, well, let me let's keep going with that a little bit because I always think that Wimbledon. The first time I went to Wimbledon, I'm like, this is crazy. It's you're used to hotels and courtesy cars and a certain sort of life on the road when you're in Montreal or wherever the circuit is threading through. You you go to Wimbledon and it's people have houses and you see everyone on the main drag and there's, you know, Milos Raonic is eating breakfast across from me. It's very different than your conventional yeah. tour context, right? It um, is. It, it's like no other tournament. Exactly. Obviously, we always talk about the grounds and they're so historic and the site. But it is weird that it seems like the tennis world invades this little village for almost four weeks a year. A lot of the players get there early and um, you're they're just living – the most, I think, normal life of anywhere on the road, where I would say more than three quarters of the players are in in private housing mm-hmm. and going to like the local stores and the markets. I mean, we see all these pictures of Rafa at the, the <laughs> what's, what's the, the name of the, the market grocery yeah. store. Yeah, right. um, but it's true. You walk through the village and you're a tennis fan. You're going to see just about every single top player out there. So, so my question um, to you though is, what, what's the impact? It. It, it and it's great, and it's it's a great change of pace, and you get the feeling that the player. But I'm I want to. My question to you is, what is the impact of that on the competition? I mean, that to me is such a different circumstance and such a different set of surroundings than your tour event. When when Rafa's making dinner and going down to Tesco because they've, you know, run out of breadcrumbs for his fried fish, 
What's the impact of that on the, on, the, on the tennis tournament, on the tennis being played? You know, it's funny because I think for the, the players that are homebodies or get homesick or whatever, I think it's, it's huge for them at Wimbledon. And I think of a player like Kvitova, who she doesn't strike me as like the big city, oh, I want to stay in a, the greatest hotel. And, you know, I could see her. She loves Wimbledon because it's, it's a small little village and she can have her family stay with her and someone could – cook food, whether that's her or somebody else, you know, and it's just, a, it seems like a much more simple kind of existence. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's not as, no, you're right. totally you know, right, right. five-star hotel in one of the biggest cities. Obviously, London is 45 minutes away, but um, I think it really benefits these players. Rafa loves having his family and stays in a big house with everybody, and um, I, I think that the players are probably for the biggest tournament of the year pretty relaxed because they're they're so close to the site there's no traffic issues there's nothing like that they have their families if they want them there um i i think the players are, are pretty pretty happy with how it goes there let me see it's like summer camp for uh for tennis what um all right back to the men um give me one Winner and one. We're doing this, I should say, before the draws come out. But give me, give me one winner and one. Yeah, thank play. you. No, I, yeah, you've got to see the draws. I no? know. Well, you know what? First, I'll tell you two things. A, you absolutely have to see the draw, and I feel like just so much stuff goes on in the course of fourteen days that we. Everyone likes predictions. It's part of being a sports fan, but nobody stops to say. Boy, there's going to be a scheduling malfunction, and right. Dominic Team's going to have to play four straight days, and one of them's going to be against Djokovic, where it's really dubious that the match was called while the sun was. I mean, there's so right? many things I that know. go on. I mean, in other sports, you're calling most likely, not always, but one game. You know when it's coming. You can look up the weather for that day. The injury report comes out the day or two before, and now we're asked to to predict something in like 16 days. Yeah, I mean, who would exactly. have thought last year, the roof with Novak and Rafa, are we, are they going to keep it closed the next day on a sunny day? Like crazy stuff happens. So I'm asking um, you to predict if John Isner and Kevin Anderson play a match that goes yeah. to whatever it was, <laughs> exactly. 20, 23, 21, who wins the Nadal Djokovic match that follows? Um, yeah, I know. You, it's, so, uh, it's so funny. So pre, pre draw and pre, uh, strange occurrences that are unpredictable. Um, one player most likely to uh, – you, you you and I think no one's going to do it, but if you had to pick one player to break this monopoly, who would do it? Uh, well, my favorite – I know this isn't I, – I, I picked Novak to win. He hasn't had the greatest few months, um, but right. I think he's very comfortable there. If a player – I think Sitsi Pass is going to break through. I don't think it'll be this year, though. I, I just – I think it's going to take a little bit more time, but I think he will end up – Wimbledon champion um but I I gotta say I think Ash Barty has a heck of a good chance to win two in a row if you had told me a month ago what which one was going to be the toughest one for her to win I would have said the French she did that pretty easily um and she has the most perfect game for grass so unless she gets completely overwhelmed and isn't comfortable or something crazy happens in those 16 days I think she's a pretty strong favorite to to win her second major in a row. I'll, I'll give you another one to go with that. That was a nice transition, by the way. That was a very deft transition to women. Um, I'll give you another one, too. So Ash Barty is a Grand Slam champion. Did you hear about the crazy bender she went on? Did you hear that she was uh, <laughs> exactly. front row for the Billie Eilish concert? I love or? reading that, though. And people like to say, oh, she's boring or whatever. I think it's amazing because it just stays the same. And 
I got to say, I can't imagine her team and herself not being just <laughs> completely overwhelmed and excited and just handling it like no big deal. Exactly. She used to be it's so amazing. humble. I, I think I that that's one of the reasons why she has a very good chance to to win more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly. I mean, I think that's another point that militates. N- nobody's saying, boy, you used to be humble. What happened to you, Ash Barty? Um, <laughs> exactly. What about our number two seed, Naomi Osaka? What's, what's going on there? I know. It's hard to know. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty tight team. She's so good, and she's so athletic. It's it's only a matter of time before things kind of click back into gear for her. I just don't know if it'll be on grass. She hasn't historically been at her best on this surface. I think she's been dealing with a lot these last few months. Um, sometimes you need to go back to a place where you have great memories or you know you've played your best. Sometimes that can help. Um I wouldn't have. I wouldn't hit the panic button if I was an Osaka huge fan. Um, not yet, but I, I, I don't know if my expectations would be sky high for this Wimbledon. I think if you're the team, you try and get her in a good place to play her best tennis, make it about the tennis, um, use her power, use her serve. She can win Wimbledon. She will win Wimbledon. It's just. I just don't know if you can go from the last couple months that she's had and just switch it on like that. Maybe right. she can again, uh, but I, I'd be surprised. Um, the defending champ is Angie Kerber. And you know what? I actually had to pause and uh, and think about <laughs> that for, for six seconds. It's been a little little quiet in, uh, in Kerberville, hasn't it? It has. I think actually this week, I'm not a huge fan of the players who have opportunities, real opportunities to win a major playing the week before. Right, I think right. the opposite with Kerber. I think this week in Eastbourne will be huge for her going into next week. Another player who has had kind of a crummy few months, had that bad ankle injury, you know, took some losses that maybe she wouldn't ordinarily take. She needed to actually get some matches under her belt and kind of feel better about her game before getting back to defending the title at Wimbledon. Maybe being away this week as well kind of takes some of the pressure off. It can work both ways, either like be on site or kind of just come into the tournament with a lot of wins. She's played some of her best tennis in quite some time at Eastbourne. Um, I wouldn't count her out. I Again, I'd love to see how the first week goes with her, though. Right. And uh, does Hollop, I feel like you could you could cut and paste a lot of that and uh, Simona Hollop would, would apply just as well. Yeah, I'm, I was so surprised how the French ended up playing out for her. Um, I, you know, kind yeah, of you're losing right, you're right. Anisimova, right, played great, I get that. But that is typically kind of a matchup that doesn't really bother Halep, especially on clay. Okay, I'm playing a hitter that doesn't necessarily love clay. I'm going to grind this victory out. I'm going to move her around. I'm going to get her uncomfortable. And she kind of just went away kind of meekly, especially at her major. I was right. really surprised at that. Maybe she'll play at Wimbledon with no pressure. Maybe Cahill being around is really going to help her. I don't know. I, I don't quite know what's been going on with her, but I, I think she'd have to be a little disappointed with the, the clay season and how it went. She hasn't historically played her best at Wimbledon. I, I don't know. I, I look for her more towards the hard courts to really make a run again. Who, um, I mean, we, we only have a certain amount of time, so I won't ask. The, we, we have to go through every contender because they're like 30. Um, wait, did I tell you, did I say this on this podcast or was I saying this to someone else? I was laughing about us at uh, at the French Open where I think you, you said something. Did I, did I say this already? 
You said something effective like, boy, any of 25 players could win this thing. And we all nodded. That sounded about reasonable. In the women's draw. And then literally there was, I think, one top 25 player, Barty, was in the semifinals. Um, I, I mean, Crazy. I, 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 would, I would say, um, I mean, I think you're right. I think Barty suddenly becomes not only the top seed, but the favorite. Um, and anyone else you, you have kept a special eye on in the top uh, yeah, I think, 30? You know, uh, if they get their games together, Pliskova and Kvitova can be really, really good on grass. I don't know if Kvitova is even going to play at the time of this. She, she's still dealing with the arm. Right. Probably hasn't been able to put enough reps in on the court to be at her best. She catches fire, though, especially on this surface. She can be good. I, I don't like to count her out yet. I think Pliskova, with her serve and her short takebacks, and if she's ready to go and, and she's kind of in that good, confident mode, she can play great grass court tennis. Um, Serena, I mean, let's Ooh. see Who's that? how she comes out. And if she's ready to run, you don't have to cover quite as much court on grass. You can get away with the first two shots, the most important shots. And if you're Serena looking to make an impact with the serve and the return, got her all the way to the final last year. She won it so many times. I think look for her. I like the players with the bigger games. Even though the grass is playing slower, I still would take a player that can finish points and win points on their serve uh, to be successful on grass. What's your uh, Serena optimism index these days? Uh, most optimistic at Wimbledon. Um, U.S. Open would be second. I have not seen her hit a ball on grass yet. Sometimes you get a sense by watching some of the practices the week before. Right. Um, let's see that first match and see how she's adjusted to the grass, how her knee is. Is she able to move at 100%? Um, last year, she was probably at 60%, and she got all the way to the final. I know she's improved from last year if she's healthy. She obviously knows how to win majors and win Wimbledon. So um, let's see how she gets through this first week. Surprise she, uh, surprise she hasn't played since Paris? No. She was. I. I. She gave that press conference saying that she was going to play somewhere. I, I just don't see any of those places. I think she knows the importance of getting used to how the grass is playing at Wimbledon. Right, right. Getting used to those surroundings. She has a family. Hard to be moving around to some of those other towns. They're smaller. The courts aren't quite as pristine as as the All England Club. Uh, I, I think she actually made the right call. Um. The obligatory. Uh, I feel like you're the, the you're a Mad Rashad to her Jordan. The the obligatory Madison Keys update. Um, you know, it's so interesting because Madison, with her game and her mindset, she loves playing on the grass. Right. It always kind of surprised me because she has some pretty big grip changes and some pretty big backswings. But I know this is the one where she want. I mean, she's dying to do well on grass. She likes to play on grass. Um, she wasn't able to play a warm-up tournament because she had, you know, her knee comes in and out of bothering her. Um, She's been over there since the Saturday before. She's training hard. Um, She just has to see with her serve and her forehand if she has the timing down and she is feeling 100% able to move. Of course, she can do well out there. Um, A lot of things, you've got to see the draw, which we don't have yet. I'm see how it kind of pans out but with her big game she likes the grass 
those are two huge things, um, positive things for, for players, and she really wants to do well there. All right, so let me ask you two questions that you've raised uh, tangentially. Um, one of them you have firsthand experience with and one of them you don't. You mentioned Pliskova, who I, yep. I think now fairly firmly wears the uh, – the, the do you know it's sort of a double edged sword of uh, the best player never to have won a major. Do players think about that? I mean, you you were very lucky, right? You were a teenager, right? When you won the U.S. Yeah, Open, yeah, very. That's young. funny. You never had to do it, you that. You know, drill. this changed so much. I was 22 when I won my first, and that was old <laughs> back in that day. Novotna had won her first, and she was in her late 20s, and that was right, like right. unheard of. And then I I felt like I was getting a lot of grief, and I was only 22, and I hadn't won one. Um, I think I think it does wear on you when you've been a top 10, top five player for the majority of your career and you see other players that you beat or you feel like you're better than and you see them coming through and winning majors and you haven't been able to. I think Wozniacki dealt with that for years, Halep the same. No question, Pliskova, while happy with her career and happy with the way things are going, would be like, okay, I, I got to win one here. Look at all these players that are winning majors the last four or five years, you know, when there's so many names there and you're not one of them. I think that has to kind of hurt. Well, all right, so keep going with that. I mean, this whole climate, this whole moment we're in in women's tennis now, where it's Ash Barty can win on clay and teenagers make semis and Serena could run the table or she could be 37 and go out in the middle weekend. What does that do to your mindset entering a tournament when this field is so wide open? It's, it's a theme again and again. Again, I, I think it's great. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything negative about it, but if you're, if you're a player, how does the mindset differ when the field is wide open and you keep hearing that versus who's going to take down the big three or who's going to mount a challenge to the mighty Serena? I think if you're a young up and coming player or if you're outside the top 20, you are so excited for these majors. You're, you know, you're like, yes, I have a chance. Look at all these people. Look at uh, Vondrasova getting to the final of the French Open unseated. So many players feel like they have a chance. Some to win, others to have a, a career-changing tournament. So I think that gives a lot of optimism to many, many more players than there used to be in women's tennis. I think it causes a little bit more anxiety for the top players a little bit more stress on the draws or who some of the floaters might be, where they end up, because um, that's obviously more dangerous now than it used to be. Um, but I think it's pretty great. I think that it's let's, – let's just go the Americans, right? Today we had Coco Goff and Katie McNally qualify. Right, I mean, right, they're like, right. yes, maybe I can have a tournament like Anna Samova. <laughs> Almost the same age. She just got – she just did so well. Um, now maybe it's my turn to do as well. And so I think that brings a lot of optimism. I think it brings a lot of uh, hope for a lot of the younger players and, and for a lot of the other players that are really good but maybe haven't had their breakthrough yet. I always wonder, too, with um, remember in the juniors, um, indirect wins? <laughs> yeah, I of course. Some play, I mean, <laughs> you, you sort of look at that in women's tennis now, and literally, like, if you haven't beaten a top-five player, you probably have an indirect win over them. I, I got to think they're 10. I mean, re realistically, the, the men enter the tournament saying, boy, I'd love to have a, a strong event and uh, it's it's lightning in a bottle. Maybe I can, you know, catch someone on, on an off day. But I think you've, you've got to be pretty realistic if you're anyone outside the 
the top four, right? You're, you're probably I not going to win this so. thing. I think that then the the priorities or the goals shift just a little bit. Um, maybe you know before, maybe on the women's side, maybe some of the players that aren't seated are even thinking they can get quarters around the sixteen. On the men's side, maybe they're thinking more third round. Right. At least right now in this generation of of these players doing so well, um, it, it's fascinating. It's a total switch of like the 90s in women's and men's tennis where men's tennis was a little bit more open maybe the late 90s early 2000 years was more open in men's tennis and now it's just not the case there's just no breathing room up at the top for anybody else it seems like and we have this crazy historical race going on that is just mind-blowing all these majors that these three have been able to stockpile it seems like um so it, I think it's kind of fun to have it both ways. I mean, everyone waiting to see again at the end of Wimbledon, like where's the Grand Slam tally? Exactly. <laughs> Does, he get exactly. Does he extend his lead? I don't know. I kind of like it. I, I can't be easy for a lot of the players because they're, they don't have a lot of chances, but I don't know. As a fan now and as a journalist, I think it's awesome. It's awesome. Right. And I feel like uh, the, the, the men's and women's tours play off each other really well now. And and it used to be, I mean, when you were playing, um, which is right when I started covering tennis. It was like women, 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 and the men, it's wide open, and one day it's Al Costa, and the next it's Thomas Johansson, and when is a man going to actually step up and take ownership of the... It's the exact same conversation, just in reverse, and eventually the pendulum probably swings back the other way, I would think. I would imagine. It's also cyclical. It'll go back. I mean, when these three players all are, are gone you have to think it's going to be more open. I can't imagine someone else is going to dominate just – maybe they'll win a handful of majors, but you just can't can't even possibly understand what these guys are doing, going through, and it just can't seem to think that it's going to happen again so easily for other players. I keep thinking of kids who just start like your like, uh, like, you know, like your kids. They're going to say, like, boy, Zverev was good and all, but it's, it's not like he won double-digit majors. People are going to think uh... <laughs> exactly right. They're setting the bar so high; it's, the only one it's out of control. I mean, even Serena, the women's side, like crazy. I mean, it's now it's like two or three. Like that's nothing. Like if you won like seven or ten, it's like come on. <laughs> Got to get to double figures. Um. All right, that uh, this is great. Wait, give me give me your your pick and party to win. Give me your top top th- top four women's picks. What do you got? I yeah, Barty. I think Pliskova. I, I told you I'd like to see the draw, but I'm going oh. to end with saying I think right now before a draw comes out, I go Novak and Barty. Now, we can do like, we can add on to this podcast in a few days after the draw comes out. I hope you'll let me. <laughs> You're taking both top seeds, I'll have you know. I am. I am. I feel good about it. All right. Next time we're going to go, we're, we'll do like Mugu. We're going to go way down uh, next time. This is great, though. This um, You're headed over tomorrow? I'm headed over tomorrow, exactly. You and me both. Um, all right, this was fun. That's great. Well, uh, you, I know you don't like to binge, so read uh, read John Isner's piece on uh, on your flight. I will. And um, I'll see you over there. Thanks. See you soon. All right, see you, buddy. All right, thanks. That does it for this week. Big thanks to uh, our friend Lindsay Davenport. Always a pleasure talking shop with Lindsay. We'll be doing it for Tennis Channel throughout Wimbledon, so uh, you can catch us there. Thanks everyone to listening. Thanks as always to Jamie for her expert uh, producer skills. We are boarding the big plane and uh, we'll do our next podcast from the All England Club, but that will do it for this week. So uh, thanks everyone. You can, as always, subscribe to this channel wherever podcasts are sold. 
iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play. You can always leave a review, good, bad, and different. Um, again, fill out that survey if you don't mind. SI.com slash baseline survey. SI.com slash baseline survey. That will help us here at Sports Illustrated as we uh, always look to, uh, to innovate and improve. All right, that does it for this week. Enjoy the first few days of Wimbledon, and uh, we'll be back soon. All right, thanks, everyone. Thank you.